Acts chapter 11, verses 16 through 18. Peter replied to the Jerusalem leaders, I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? When they heard this, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, So then, God has given repentance resulting in life, even to the Gentiles. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, your name is holy, and you are worthy of all praise and adoration. Yet we in the flesh create barriers of race, culture, time, and distance. Yet you break those down, bringing the faithful together. For you have a diverse and vibrant church around the earth. So give us eyes to see repentance and new life, that we may glorify your holy name. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Patrick, for reading that. How you doing? Oh, you look good. I'll tell you that. Uh, I love that last song. That is a get up out of your seat song, isn't it? Praise God. I thank the master. I thank the savior. I thank God. That he has accepted us Gentiles, those of you who are Gentiles. Uh, The passage that we just read in uh, Acts chapter 11 is actually the end of the story. It's actually the end of the story that we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 10. We started this story last week, and I think I covered half a verse. (laughs) No, I've got to actually cover the rest of it, so we're going to burn through this passage. But folks, buckle up, hold on to your seat. We are going to dive into this passage and see just how God has graced us, blessed us, those of us who are not natural-born Jews, with this salvation faith. And it all starts in a home of a guy named Cornelius, who is a Roman centurion. And up until this moment in the story, the gospel has largely been preached to the Jews only. So the gospel was preached to the apostles and to those Jewish towns and then to the Jews in Jerusalem and all those diaspora Jews that have come from every city in the Roman Empire and now congregated uh, on the day of Pentecost. And so the gospel has been almost exclusively, with the exception of the Samaritans who are half Jew, uh, for the Jews. And now in this chapter, in chapter 10, God is starting a new direction. And the direction that he's starting beginning in chapter 10 is he's turning his affections and attention and efforts much more toward the Gentile world, and in particular, Greco-Rome. And that's going to become significant later as the book of Acts unfolds. Now, when Peter gets back to report this incident back to the Jerusalem council, when he gets back, Their question is not, how could you baptize these Gentiles into our faith? That is not their question. Their question is, how could you and your party, how could you and your associates eat (laughs) and have table fellowship with Gentiles? And so what we see in this sort of, uh, there's, a, there's a tension that the story is really permeated with, and that is the tension between the dietary rules, which basically there were none among Gentiles, like there are none really among us, and those of the Jews. Uh, the Jews had three badges or three marks of membership in the covenant community. This is how, as a Jew, you showed others that you 
are a member of God's covenant community. The men get circumcised on the eighth day, preferably, and then you eat a kosher diet. You, you observe the Torah kosher eating laws. And then thirdly, you observe Sabbath. You rest on the Sabbath. You do not work, and you, uh, you consecrate the Sabbath to worship. And then maybe you uh, also celebrate the, the high festivals, the three festivals in Leviticus. So that's how you showed the rest of the world that you were a covenant-compliant Jew. And so these dietary laws have become very, very important. One, they're a barrier between the two peoples. And two, it's the way the Jews say to the Gentiles, we're not you. We're the special possession of God. And this is how we know it. He gave us these laws. And so last week we learned that Cornelius is a Roman centurion He's in charge of about 100, 100 other people. He's stationed there. He probably lives there, and he's probably retired. And while he is there, we also learn that he's very devout. He fears the Jewish God, which means that he is publicly loyal to the Jewish God. And then while he is praying at a certain hour, chapter 10, verses 4 through 6 say, The angel told him, Your prayers and your acts of charity have ascended as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Jaffa, and call for Shimon, or Simon, who was also named Petras, Peter. He is lodging with another man named Shimon, a tanner whose house is by the sea in Joppa. And so this uh, man, Cornelius, this Roman centurion, has certainly gotten God's attention, but he does not have salvation. As of yet, he does not have salvation. Meanwhile, God has cryptically revealed to Peter his mission among Cornelius and his household. And I love the way God does this, because the way that we see that God does it is he does not give Cornelius the gospel in his heavenly vision. The angel does not deliver it. The angel is not authorized. He's not a human being. And so uh, the angel does not give him the gospel. The angel tells him, go find somebody who has the gospel, and he'll explain it to you. This is, always God, this is pretty much always God's pattern. Even if he reveals himself in a dream or a vision, he's going to lead that person to a human being who can sit down and give them a New Testament or share the gospel. We mentioned that last week. So he doesn't give Cornelius and his household the gospel. He tells them, go find Peter, this man named Simon. And he doesn't give Simon the whole message either. Simon, all Simon gets is a vision while he's up on his house. Now, his stomach is rumbling. He's hungry. <laughs> like, I mean, like his stomach is rumbling as we speak, and he is up on the rooftop, usually because it was a little bit cooler up on the rooftops, and he's up there to pray. And while he's praying and his stomach is, stomach is rumbling, God gives him a vision, basically like a picnic blanket, a sheet, something lets out of heaven, a tent. The word can also mean tent. And it's bound at all four corners. And then on this sheet, every kind of unkosher, unclean animal falls, right? And he hears a voice that says, go, kill and eat. And in typical Peter fashion, he says back to the voice from heaven, no, I won't be doing that. All right, remember Matthew 16, and Jesus says to him, I'm going to the cross, that's God's plan. And he goes, no, Lord, never. And Jesus has to say, what? Get behind me, devil. Get behind me, Satan. You do not know the plan of God. So the whole point here is that this is a voice from heaven now speaking to him to tell him. And actually what this voice is doing is telling him 
to disobey the Torah, to become uncompliant, which would kick him out of covenant faithfulness. It would kick him out of the covenant community. And he goes, never. I've never eaten anything that's unclean or unkosher. Never. And then the voice says it again, go, kill, and eat. And he says, never. And the voice says it again. He has to tell him three times, do it. Do it. And then the sheet lets up into heaven. And this is what the voice replies. What God has declared clean, do not call unclean. He goes, what? God has called these things unclean. Hasn't he? Didn't he reveal that in the Torah? Didn't he say, these things are not clean? Do not, don't you dare eat that flank of camel steak. Don't you dare eat that dung beetle, right? Like the, the, there, which was a thing, you know, okay. Don't you dare eat that, that crab meat or that shellfish. These things are unclean. And this voice now says, what God has declared clean, do not call unclean. And so the vision is repeated three times. Now, Peter, it says, is deeply perplexed. Of course he is. This cuts to the heart of his ethnic identity. And while he's wondering about the 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 meaning of the dream or the vision. It says, three men are here looking for you. The Spirit of God spoke to him and said, three men are here looking for you. Now, get up, go downstairs, and go with them with no doubts at all, because I have sent them. Do not doubt. Beyond the peradventure of a doubt, I have sent them to you. And just then, there's a knock at the door. And there are three men who arrive, and they are asking for Peter. And they relayed the story and the message from Cornelius. Now, this story about Cornelius' vision takes place in two chapters four times. It is told in two chapters four different times. Luke tells it. And then the men, when they, get, when they find Peter, they tell it. And then when Peter, Peter gets to Cornelius' house, he tells him again. And then in chapter 11, he has to go down to Jerusalem, and he has to say, hey, I met a man named Cornelius, and this is what happened. So four different times, the story is really important. The story is really important to the trajectory or the direction of the gospel of Jesus. And so they go with the men. The next morning, they go with the men, and they arrive to a packed-out villa. Cornelius likely lived in a home that could accommodate between 150 to 200 people. Talk about a house church. That's a big one. And he has invited his entire extended family and many friends who were sympathetic to his faith. And Peter enters the gate. He comes through the gate. And Cornelius is so overwhelmed, he runs up to him. And he falls down before his feet. And it says he paid him homage, which is the same word for worship. Now, he's just a, he's a natural-born pagan. He doesn't know what else to do. This is what you do when you're a pagan. And so Peter has to stand him up and say, no, 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 get up. I'm a man just like you. I'm a mere man. But he says, if you don't mind me asking, why have you sent for me? And at this, Cornelius recites the heavenly vision. So now, we are all in the presence of God, he says, to hear everything you have to say to us. Everything you've been commanded by the Lord to say to us. And Peter stipulates what everyone in the room already knows. Verse 28. Well, you know how it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner. There's a way to start a dinner conversation, huh? But God has shown me that I must not call any person he has made impure or unclean. Well, that's nice. But you see, clearly here, he gets the point of the vision. Now he put, I mean, even Peter, he could put this together. (laughs) He could say, okay, now I understand the reason for that vision. God is saying the Gentiles are no longer unclean. 
And at this, Peter begins to preach the gospel. Man, we're going to unpack this. We're going to look at this gospel that he preaches. The first thing we see in the story, number one, is that God's plan was to favor all nations with salvation from the beginning. This is God's plan from the beginning, is to favor all the nations, the Gentile nations, with salvation from the very get-go, right? Look at chapter 10, verses 34 and 35. It says, Peter began to speak. Now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism. Underline that. God doesn't show favoritism. But in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. We'll talk about that in the next point. But right now, underline, God doesn't show favoritism. Doesn't he? Didn't he? In the Old Testament? Did God favor Israel? Yes. God had favored Israel and their ancestors in the past. Why? In Genesis 8, chapter 6. Okay? So basically what you need to know is in the book of Genesis, uh, between the story of Noah and the story of Abraham is what theologians refer to as the great divorce. It is the great divorce in which God looks at the Gentile nations and says, okay, you want other gods, you can have them. And God turns his attention then to Abraham and his line. But God always, always said, even to Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. You're going to be the father of so many, more than the grains of sand on the seashore, right? So he says, so many people, uncountable. And God favored Noah. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 6, it says, Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. Genesis 12, 1, it says, God showed favor to Abraham. Abraham was favored. Who was his brother? Nahor. <laughs> right? Like this guy named Nahor. That was his big brother. And God chose Abraham, not Nahor, for, for his own reasons. At Exodus 11, 3, it says, God favored the nation of Israel and set them apart as his special possession. Isaiah 42, 6 says that God, among all the nations of the earth, God has set Israel apart as his special possession, but they're going to be a light to the Gentiles. But that's all he says about the Gentiles. Isaiah 61, God promised to send and anoint the Messiah to proclaim the year of what? The Lord's favor. To who? Well, in Isaiah 61, it's to Zion. But in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus reads that passage in his first sermon in Nazareth, Jesus reads the passage and then says, actually, this also includes the Gentiles. And they lose their mind on Jesus. That's a fist-fighting church right there. Because he is announcing to them, God has come to welcome the Gentile nations into his holy family. This one new humanity made of Jew and Gentile in Christ. And they, they lose it. They come unhinged on him. And in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus has risen from the dead. He has risen from the dead. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now I am authorizing you, go make disciples of all the nations. The word nations is the word ethne, and it's where we get the word ethnic, ethnicity. It means go make disciples of every ethnicity on the face of the earth. That is what the mission is. That's in Galilee. Back in Jerusalem, Luke 24, he gives it to him again. This is, this is a separate account. It says, repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, starting with Jerusalem. 
And then Acts 1.8, before Jesus leaves the earth, the last thing he has to say to them is this. Jesus told them they would be his witnesses to the gospel of salvation from Jerusalem out to the ends of the earth. God favored Abraham and God favored Israel to bring forth his favored Messiah so that the Messiah could offer his favor the favor of salvation and the grace of salvation to all the Gentile nations. And that's what this story is about. This story demonstrates that beyond the peradventure of a doubt. And this is why as Christians, we are not to show favoritism. We're to be prejudiced. Why? Paul says this in 1 Timothy 5.21. It says, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels, holy smokes, to observe these things without prejudice, Do nothing out of favoritism. Don't be prejudiced. Don't be a racist. Don't practice undue discrimination. What he's saying here is that this is not the Christian way. The reason why it's not the Christian way is because the Christ, who was the Jewish Messiah, has offered salvation to all nations of the earth. He has shown us all his favor. Amen. So this was God's plan all along. Number two, Peter now understands the plan. Well, now he gets it. Peter now understands the plan of salvation. So again, this passage in verse 34, Peter began to speak. Now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism. Got it. But in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. What does he mean by this? After all that Jesus had taught them, in his great commission in Galilee, in his great commission in Jerusalem, and his great commission in Acts 1.8, now Peter finally gets it. God accepts all nations. What did he understand? What did he understand? Well, he understood that God accepts everyone who believes in Jesus. What does it mean to do what is right? What does that phrase mean? One could actually come to this passage and try to sort of uh, wring work salvation out of it. To say, well, clearly God had saved Cornelius because of his actions, because of his works. God favored him because he earned it. But that's not what Peter is saying at all. This is not Peter's understanding. God accepts, he says, God accepts everyone who believes in Jesus. It was very common for a converted Jew or a person who was going to convert from Judaism to Christianity. It was very common to ask this question, what must I do to be saved? Remember the rich young ruler? He comes to Jesus and what is his question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What do you mean? (laughs) Are you a son of Abraham? Yes. Are you Torah compliant? To the letter. Okay, well, go do that. (laughs) And that's a test of responsiveness. Jesus wants to know, do you want the real answer? Does your heart hunger for the real answer? Or do you you just want status quo theology? The answer that every other rabbi would give you. And so Jesus says, do you really want to know the answer? And he goes, but I have done all of that. I am a son of Abraham. I've done all the laws. I've never broken them as far as I know. Something is still missing, and he knows it in his heart. So Jesus says, okay, get rid of your idols. Come follow me. That's it. (laughs) So he wants to know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you can only find out if you follow Jesus, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and he will lead you to it. You might not even understand it today, but he's the one that's going to lead, it to, lead you to it. What about the people on the day of Pentecost? 
All these Jews who have come from all these cities around Rome, they come and they hear Peter is burning it up. I mean, Peter is laying it down. It's, it's a powerful gospel message in Acts chapter 2. And what, are the people, what does it say? They were cut to the heart. They're convicted by this message. They cry out, what must we do to be saved? Of course, these are Jews. They want to know, what's the list? What are the things I need to check off? And what's Peter's response? Repent. Believe. <laughs> right? And then Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus is knocked off of his horse. He sees the risen Jesus in a vision. And in this vision, uh, before he even has a chance to really, really respond to Christ, Jesus says, get up, go into the town, and I will show you what you must do. So this is Jewish language. You're talking their language. What must I do to be saved? Okay. Here's Jesus' answer to the Pharisees in John 6, 28 and 29. This is their question. What can we do to perform the works of God? What more can we do to be accepted before God? They asked, and Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. You see, it's repentance. You were going this way in unbelief, and now you've repented of your unbelief, and you're going this way in belief. You're a repentant believer. What about Peter's answer? Acts 2.38, we mentioned this. He says, repent, turn away from your unbelief to believe. He says, repent and believe. And be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, so you will receive and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, it's with the heart that you believe that we believe and are made righteous. It's with the mouth that we confess and are saved. Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, who's a sinner. Everyone. Paul says this, this is Paul's answer in Romans 3, 20 through 23. He says, for no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. What does the law do? Well, at the very least, it informs you that you're a sinner. I mean, the law says the bar is here, uh, you're down here, <laughs> uh, and the furthermore, I can't help you get up here. The law can do nothing to empower you to meet the law. So he says, the standard of the law informs us of our sin. It makes us consciously aware that we are sinners. That comes through the law. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all believe, to those who repent of their unbelief and believe and turn to belief in Jesus, since there is no distinction, no discrimination. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So I want to say this very clearly. If you're here today and you thought and you've been thinking that your salvation is a matter of all the stuff that you can do to be accepted by God or that there's just some general bell curve that you hope you meet, listen, that is a burden it is a burden, frankly, that you don't have to carry anymore. Christ bore that burden on the cross, and he nailed it to the cross. And every person in this room who used to be a religious person who was trying to become acceptable to God and do, do as much as they could to be good enough 
and righteous enough for God who has now experienced the, the ray of light in their soul of God's grace, every one of them will tell you, man, there's a joy you have not experienced yet. There's a joy, a light that will flood your soul when you realize you're forgiven, you're set free, and you don't have to carry that burden anymore. This happened to George Whitfield. Uh, the pastoral staffers and I are going through a biography on the life of and preaching of uh, perhaps the greatest preacher in the history of the church, a man named George Whitfield in the 1700s. And what is so surprising about Whitfield's story is that Whitfield originally, I did not know this before I started reading the biography, was best friends with the Wesleys, the Wesley boys, uh, John and Charles. And of course, they are responsible for what's called Wesleyanism. Wesleyanism is a, is a doctrine of perfectionism. And this is before they called it that, but he was following his friends at school. They were at college together, and he, was, he did everything he could possibly do. But he found out he could not fast enough, he could not pray enough, he could not work enough, he could not deny himself enough to be acceptable before God. It was driving him mad. In fact, it put him in the hospital, and he almost died from it. And while he was in the hospital, he had a sudden inbreaking of the glory and the grace of the Lord Jesus. And this is how Arnold Dalimore, the biographer, writes it. He says, but now, when there was nothing else that Whitfield could do, God revealed himself in grace and granted Whitfield that which he, he had learned he could never, could never be earned in utter desperation and in rejection of all self-trust, he cast himself on the mercies of God through Jesus Christ and a ray of faith granted him from above, assured him he would not be cast out. And in that moment, all this time, he was trying to please Jesus. He realized Christ died for him. And that grace was available to him. Whitfield's own account. Says God was pleased to remove the heavy load to enable me to lay hold of his dear son by a living faith and, and by giving me the spirit of adoption to seal me even to the day of everlasting redemption. Oh, with what joy, joy unspeakable, even joy that was full of and big with glory was my soul filled when the weight of sin went off it. And an abiding sense of the love of God broke in upon my disconsolate soul, my joys like the springtide overflowing the river banks. Listen, for people who have had that experience, for people who know this, they were trying to please God and be good enough and be righteous enough, and, and all of a the sudden they received the free gift of God's grace and have been set free from sin, they can tell you there is a joy. There's an absolute joy that you, that you don't know of yet. And so if you're here today, I implore you, I beg you, come and receive it. So the question, what must I do, is always an appropriate question. The question, what must I do, is not inappropriate. It has an answer. And Jesus' answer is that salvation is not about what you do for Christ. It's about what Christ has done for you on the cross. Salvation is not about what you do for Jesus. It's about what Christ has done for us on the cross. And when we come to this realization, we, our hearts are set free. Listen, if Luke means to say that Cornelius is already accepted by God and saved by God, what does he need Peter for? What does he need Peter for? What does he need the gospel for? God is going to get him the gospel because he has God's attention. He does not have salvation. 
And what an absolutely marvelous realization Peter has come to. The God who favored Abraham and his lineage and Abraham's progeny, right? The God who favored his people is now through the Messiah offering salvation to all. And he understands it. He finally understands it. Number three, Peter proclaims the plan of salvation. So then he proclaims it. He's like, well, I understand it. Uh, Now let me share it with you. Let me help you to see it. Now what you're going to see here is that his proclamation, we're going to look at it line by line because what this is is a Jewish gospel. It's a gospel that was given to the Jews, for the Jews, by the Jews, and then we're going to find out what happens. So the very first thing that Peter wants to begin with is he wants to start where the gospel starts. That is a ministry of Israelite reconciliation. A ministry of Israelite Jewish reconciliation. Verse 36, he sent the message to the Israelites proclaiming the good news of peace. The good news of peace is the good news of being reconciled to God. Through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. So this was first offered to Peter's kinsmen in the flesh. Paul says this in Romans chapter 1. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. First for the Jew, then the Greek. So God first offered his salvation to Peter's kinsmen in the flesh. And it's a ministry that announces God is now reconciling his own people to himself. And then he tells them about a historical Jesus. A historical Jesus. He says, you know the events that took place throughout all Judea. Beginning from Galilee after the baptism John preached. What is he talking about here? He's talking about historical events. These these things are events. Jesus came incarnate in a human body and he lived in space and in time and he walked uh, Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. He lived here. Listen, there is no gospel without a historical Jesus. No gospel without a historical Jesus. He says, you know full well the events that took place throughout this region, this place. And then the historical Jesus was confirmed by signs and wonders. Make no mistake about it. Verse 37, God had anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And now he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. The word tyranny there translates a word that means the reign of terror. What's the opposite of a reign of terror? What's the opposite? It's not a democracy. Because a democracy is a human government, and that human government can become corrupted. The opposite of a reign of terror is a benevolent theocracy. It's God, a theocracy is God reigning and ruling in his benevolence, in his kindness, in his love. That's the opposite. And so what Jesus came to do is he was attested by signs and wonders so that we would be set free from the devil's tyranny, from the tyranny of living as slaves to sin. And so here we know the salvation of the gospel loses its power when we deceive ourselves into thinking that our sin is merely a disorder or just a life of hapless mistakes. That's not what our sin is. Our sin is an affront to the holiness of God. Our sin is an open-handed slap to the mouth 
of a God of glory who is holy and righteous. And Jesus said, all who sin are slaves to sin. And Paul said, for all have sinned. We have all fallen short of his glory. So Jesus' ministry was confirmed by signs and wonders to undo the reign of the devil in people's lives, to set us free from Satan's tyranny and from sin. And the historical Jesus was confirmed by supernatural signs and wonders, and he was witnessed by the apostles. Verse 39, he says, we ourselves are witnesses of everything he did in both the Judean countryside and in Jerusalem, and yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. What had they witnessed? What were they witnesses of? Of his life. He was an innocent man. He didn't deserve what he got. He didn't deserve this sham of a trial that put him on a Roman cross. He was perfectly innocent. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But then he says, when we saw him on the cross, we now testify, we give Legal testimony to this end. Jesus Christ has been crucified. No, there's no gospel without a crucifixion. No gospel without a crucifixion. And then he's vindicated in resurrection. Verse 40, God raised up this man on the third day and caused him to be seen, not, not by all people, but by us, whom God appointed as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Notice that last line. What is he trying to say? Jesus is not a ghost. Jesus isn't just some vision. Jesus is not some a wispy apparition just floating around in white robes. Jesus rose bodily. And when he rose from the dead, we sit and had breakfast with him. When he, after he rose from the dead, we ate with him. We drank with him. We know. We know what it's like to put our hands in those scars on his hands and his feet and to touch where his side had been lanced through his heart. We know that he has risen physically. And listen, there is no gospel apart from a risen, vindicated Jesus. There is no gospel apart from a risen Jesus who authenticates his claims to be Messiah. And this historical Jesus, attested by miracles, unjustly crucified and risen from the dead, singularly chose the apostles. He tells us, uniquely authorizing the apostles. They were uniquely authorized in the first century to bear witness to this fact. Verse 42, he commanded us, us, to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. They saw him. They saw him bodily. They saw him physically. What does John say in his letter? In his letter, he says, this is the revelation, that which we have seen with our own eyes, that which we have heard with our own ears, that which we have touched with our very hands. That is what we proclaim to you. This is the message. And the disciples, the apostles, the original apostles were uniquely situated to see and bear witness to this gospel. Last but not least, it was prophesied in the scriptures. Verse 43, all the prophets testify about him that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. There's no gospel apart from the scriptures. There isn't. There isn't just like some amorphous gospel about the resurrected Jesus hanging out there. Nope, it's according to the scriptures. Wherever a sinner has been forgiven, there the kingdom of God has been born in their heart. And the devil's reign of tyranny has been overthrown and brought to an end and replaced by Christ's reign of grace. And this was all foretold, foretold in the Old Testament. 
So now while P Peter is telling them about a Jewish Messiah who walked around Jewish towns in Galilee and Judea and then gave them a, a Jewish reconciliation and then was attested by the Hebrew Scriptures, while he is doing that, the same Holy Spirit that was poured out on them, the Jews, in Acts chapter 2, is now poured out on the Gentiles. How do they know this? Well, let's look at verse 44. It says, while Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. I, I highly suspect that Peter wanted to finish his sermon. It's a very rude thing to interrupt a preacher, right? <laughs> like a preacher wants to finish their sermon. They got to finish. But while he was still preaching his sermon, the Holy Spirit didn't wait for him to, to bring it to three points in a conclusion. The Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the proclaimed message. And the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, right? Love that. Well, how did they know that the same Holy Spirit had been poured out? Because it was accompanied by the same physical sign. For they heard them speaking in tongues and declaring the greatness of God. Remember Acts chapter 2? The Holy Spirit is poured out, and they all start busting out in languages they haven't heard yet. What's the significance of that? What's the significance of that sign? There are two. One, that signals to the church that this gospel is missional. This gospel is going in the direction of people who don't speak the same language as you. So that's the first point of the sign. The second point of the sign is to unwind the curse in Genesis 11. Because in Genesis chapter 11, they are building the Tower of Babel. They have rejected God. They're self-idols. They're self-worshippers. And God disperses them into different foreign languages, and they're totally confused. And now this... These languages mentioned in Acts chapter 2 are the same languages just about mentioned in Genesis chapter 11. What is God doing? He's unwinding the curse. He's now he's reunifying humanity, Jew and Gentile alike, in the person of Jesus Christ. And so they saw them and heard them speaking in other tongues. And then Peter responded, Well, can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized? who have now received the Holy Spirit, just as we did. He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay for a few days, no doubt to teach them all about the gospel. So now, completely apart from converting to the marks of Judaism, circumcision, dietary laws, dietary compliance, and Sabbath observance, Gentiles have come into the faith. They are sharers and partakers of the same Holy Spirit, so what do we draw out of this? What do we take out of this? Well, I think the first thing we take out of it is that the only barrier to the cross should be the cross. The only barrier to the cross should be the cross. We should not put up any artificial barriers, be they ethnic, social, socioeconomic, political. It doesn't matter what the barrier is. We should put up nothing between a person and the cross but the, because the cross is offensive all, of, all on its own, isn't it? The cross is plenty offensive. You and I don't have to help it. Because the cross bids us to come and die and it tells us we're sinners. Just leave it there. And so we should put no barriers between the people that God loves and the cross, which is a stumbling block, a rock of offense. 
And I think the second thing we take away from this is that the gospel doesn't affirm our religion. It challenges our religion. Peter is not there to say, hey, great job, religious guy. He is there to give him something he does not have, and this is what grace does. Grace offers us something that we could never, never muster. We could never marshal in our own religious resources. It offers us salvation freely, freely to accept. And that's the salvation. That's the gospel we need to give to people. I think the last thing we take out of this is we just need the gospel. We don't need gimmicks. Like we don't need to sell off a bunch of fireworks. We don't need to add anything to the gospel to make it more appealing or more attractive. We really don't need to do that. Because the gospel was powerful enough to save these people even before Peter got done with his sermon. I mean, that's how powerful the gospel is. We need to share it. We need to proclaim it. And let the Holy Spirit do what we cannot do. Amen? All right, let's pray. Come on back up, worship team. God, we just thank you for this word today. You bow your head and close your eyes, please. Let me ask you a question. You're a believer here. Would you search your hearts in the next few minutes, just the next minute or two, and ask yourself this hard question. Have I put any barriers between my friends or my family and the cross? Have I put any expectations on them that the gospel really doesn't put on them? Would you just confess that right now? And let's all commit together, right here, together. God, we are not going to put ethnic, social, socioeconomic, political barriers between people and the cross. We're going to do everything we can to just proclaim it clearly, to just explain it and dialogue about it clearly. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus... Maybe you have carried a weight of religion, and frankly, in this moment, you realize, I can't carry this burden anymore. You don't have to. You can let it go. Christ already carried it for you. Would you just let go? Cast them onto the Lord, and would you confess, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, and confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. Would you do that this morning? Let the gospel do its work in you. Let the Holy Spirit take hold in your life, and then tell someone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.